I hope you've been enjoying the distribution. I want to hear from you. Please go to the link in the show description to provide your feedback on the topics and guests you would like to hear from. I appreciate your time and hope to keep giving you more of the conversations you enjoy. I'm Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, and you're listening to The Distribution by Juniper Square. Join us as we sit down with experts from commercial real estate, venture capital, and private equity to discuss trends in technology, fundraising, and private markets. We'll cover this and much more. On today's episode, I sit down with Jeff Giller. Jeff is a partner and head of Stepstone Real Estate, where he leads global real estate investment and advisory activities and chairs the real estate investment committees. Stepstone is a global private markets firm with clients that include some of the world's largest institutional investors. Stepstone Real Estate serves as both an advisor and consultant to some of the world's largest institutional investors, as well as a manager and offers tailored portfolios of fund investments, secondaries, and co-investment opportunities for institutional investors worldwide. I've had the pleasure of knowing Jeff and some of his colleagues on Stepstone's real estate team for many years, and I'm always impressed by the breadth of knowledge and perspective they have based on their unique position in the market. On this episode, Jeff and I discuss the origin story of Stepstone Real Estate, Jeff's career, and the lessons learned, as well as we dive deeper into the secondaries market and discuss why this downturn is different than past downturns and how that may be impacting pricing, deal flow, and opportunities. Let's get into it. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brandon. It's uh, great to be here. I I always like talking to you, so we might as well do it in front of a mic. That's what I figure. Awesome. Well, let's get into it. So I always like to start each conversation by having my guests introduce themselves. So can you tell us you know, who you are, what you do, and then we'll kind of go into your background a little bit more. Certainly. I'm Jeff Giller, and I'm the head of Stepstone Real Estate. And Stepstone Real Estate is part of the Stepstone Group. And we describe ourselves as a global solutions providers to institutions and, and, and GPs. So we're part of a firm that includes private equity, uh, private credit, infrastructure, and real estate. So it's very interesting because we're able to offer all of those solutions to institutional investors. And we work with investors to help them think about how to allocate risk in the private markets globally. We do it by investing in funds, secondaries, and and, and co-investments. And then we provide solutions to GPs by providing them with liquidity, investing in their funds, helping their LPs uh, create liquidity by acquiring their interest on a secondary position. We have a big focus on recapitalizing GPs, platforms, real estate vehicles, such as funds and other kinds of operating vehicles. And we also have a big co-investment program. So again, we sort of sit at the epicenter between the LP and the GP universe, providing liquidity solutions to GPs and investment solutions to LPs. Awesome. And we're going to spend some time talking more about kind of what you're actively working on at StepStone today. But before we do, you know, tell us a little bit about what life before StepStone looked like. What's the kind of evolution or the journey of your career in real estate or maybe something else prior to that? So before StepStone, it's I, I feel like all roads in the trajectory of my career have really led me to what I'm doing today at StepStone. I started off early in my career, actually, as an office leasing broker and decided that 
sales wasn't right for me, was lucky enough to move into an institutional investment role with a really strong firm called Metric Realty. And I, I quickly realized that you know, someday I would want to run and build my own firm, an investment management firm, or at least have a senior role in a, in a large institution. And part of that journey or to, to, to achieve that, I felt it was important to, to understand every aspect of real estate in, in investing. So I actually organized my career to make sure I got experience in investment analysis, investment acquisitions, asset management, you know, finance, working across product types and, and globally. So al- along the way, I worked at a firm that is sadly no longer exists. It's called J- the J.E. Robert Companies. It was a sort of an iconic firm that focused on distressed debt during the RTC period and worked on buying distressed debt from defunct savings and loans. And eventually, as that business started to sort of settle down in the U.S., I moved to Europe with the company to really build one of the first American outposts in Europe or, or, or offshore to buy distressed debt and distressed asset in the European market. So I moved with my, my family, my, my, poor, my poor wife, and my six-week-old baby moved to Paris, France in 1995 and helped it build JR's distressed debt business and eventually acquisition business there for years. Then came back and came back to the US in about 2000 and deciding to raise my own funds as principal. So I uh, got together with partners, raised some money, invested, made, invested the capital through a few very successful funds until I discovered the secondaries business, which I thought would be, which I thought was very interesting because, well, we could talk more about what the secondary business is, but sort of pivoted my career in 2005 to secondaries. And that was the beginning of what is now Stepstone Real Estate. We built a business called Clareview Capital Partners that was focused on GP-led secondaries and eventually sold that business to Stepstone to create Stepstone Real Estate. Excellent. And so what was the, you know, just from a timeline perspective, so, you know, you started your career, you moved to Paris in 95 with a young family, you came back, you started your own fund. 2005, you moved and find out or enter the secondaries business. You started and ran Clairview with your partners until what year? Kind of when did the transition to or the the sale or merger with Stepstone occur? So that was that was 2014. So from 2009 to 2014, we built and ran Clairview Capital Partners in partnership with uh, Goldman Sachs. They were our big investor and a, and a partner in the business, and it was really successful. But we were seeking to move into a larger platform. We were we were a boutique investment shop and really felt that we needed to build scale and we needed to do it pretty quickly to address the market. And it was going to just be a long road to do that organically as a boutique for managing, you know, two to five hundred million dollar funds. What so I mean, I like this concept of organize you know, organizing one's career. I mean, it sounds very deliberate, especially when you're looking back you know, at what you've accomplished already and, and, you know, you have everything that you're going to accomplish going forward. I mean, what were some of the key moments that stand out to you kind of along the journey, you know, across the different shops that you worked at, like where you're like, okay, this is something that I've, that this is, this is what I came to do. I've achieved that. And now I'm ready to pivot and do something else. That's a, that's a, that's a really good question because 
at a point in my career when I actually owned and ran my own businesses, and that was starting, let's say, in 2005, my early 40s, there had to be a moment where I was actually comfortable pulling the trigger on a deal, making the decision, being the final decision maker to invest millions of dollars of client capital and my own personal money. And you get a lot of experience, you have a lot of confidence along the way in your investment acumen and your ability to analyze analyze investment. But the responsibility of really investing that capital, to me at least, didn't come until I had had a lot of reps. You know, a lot of reps, been through, been through cycles, had done a lot of deals, had won and lost. And I think it didn't really click for me until I was about 41. And that's when I raised my first fund, you know, and was a CIO and was a final call on the investment decisions. But I had to go through, frankly, a lot of background and, and training and experience before I was comfortable doing that. And, I, and I've now been, you know, in the trigger pulling position as CIO of you know, any firm that I've been with for 20 years. Was it obvious to you when you made the transition to go out and raise your own funds that you were ready? I mean, did you have total conviction or, you know, the, the night before you incorporate and, and go out for your first pitch and, you know, sign on the dotted line for your first uh, commitment? I mean, did you have doubt or or did you feel like you were totally ready for that moment? I think I felt like I was totally ready for that moment. I I was fortunate enough to have spent my career going through several different market cycles. It's what I tell people today, kids that are starting off in the business, including my my own son, who's just started in the business, that you don't know how lucky you are to be starting your career in a down cycle because there are people now that have been over a decade in an up cycle that just don't have the insights and experience of what a downturn can do to assets and therefore, you know, just will will never have the instincts for decision making. So I think the fact that I went that I went through an up cycle and then saw how the world could just fall apart and unravel so quickly during the savings and loan crisis and cause complete devastation and why over leverage, over building, bad public policy loose lending and saw how the lack of discipline by by both lenders and investors ended up sort of in the destruction of the real estate market and then got to work through that whole recovery period in the aftermath of the savings and loan RTC crisis and then just see a very long up cycle that then kind of took a downturn during the tech wreck in the early 2000s and then once again another devastating RTC-like market cycle during during the GFC, right? and then the pandemic. So having gone through these downturns and seeing how downturns and what drives them and how recoveries work and what their pace is and how people behave was something that really helped me to feel confident about what would happen when I made that investment, to really feel comfortable about the underwriting know how to approach the underwriting, know to look for due diligence. So, and, and then the other part of it is just process. As, as my team knows, and I probably drive them crazy with, is I'm, I'm, I'm a process fiend. So two follow-ups before we kind of move on to what's happening today. One is, do you 
have any regrets as you look back on kind of your career thus far in terms of things that you wish you would have started doing sooner, stopped doing, you know, just kind of anything that stands out to you? I don't think that you can look back at anything really in life with regret or you should. You make choices and choices take you down different paths and you do the best you can with those paths. And another path may have been better, but it could have been worse. But I always, you know, can I tell my kids, pick a path and make the best of it and be be, be happy with it. So so I'm I'm really happy about where I am, where I've landed, the people I work with. And you know, some people make <laughs> regrets about the deals they didn't do. We've certainly, you know, because of our conservative have missed a lot of deals that other people have done that, you know, they brag about being home runs. It's not a bad thing to make the wrong decision. Set your policy, set your rationale, you live by it. And if the outcome is different because market events are different than you projected and the deal ended up being a home run that someone else didn't you miss, you should pat yourself on the back for making the wrong decision because it was for the right reasons. And if you do that consistently, your track record will be great and your loss ratios will be low. Last last question before we move on to, to Stepstone is, you know, you mentioned this idea that, you know, it's great, especially for people like your son who are starting their career in a downturn. You've been through many. Kind of what's your belief of people who started their career over the last 10 years who have only seen up and to the right? How do you kind of approach them, approach that situation with the benefit of having the context of what a downturn looks like, knowing that the counterparty on the other side may not? Like, what are some of the things that you're, you know, you kind of are, are evaluating and thinking about when you interact with, you know, managers who are relatively new? Yeah. So, so I'll start off by saying we have a phenomenal team of very smart people that take a very conservative view to underwriting. In fact, I bring deals to my team and they kill them. And I've got nothing to say about it. So that that's the baseline. But as we're moving into this downturn, deals I can think of, they they would think, and I don't I don't blame them, that being conservative about a potential dysfunctioning market would mean that you would take a market that's, you know, 95% occupied and bring down the projected occupancy to 91. And, you know, rent growth, it's been five or six percent, you would bring down to two to three percent, and that's conservative underwriting. And that is normally conservative underwriting in a stable or upturning market. But if you've been in the bloodbath and you've seen that when things go bad, that you know, occupancy drops from you know 95 to 85 or worse, and that rent growth goes negative. And if you're doing deals in these kind of markets, those are the things that the experience of having actually been through bloodbaths teaches you you need to consider when you're taking risk. Also that you can't just depend on on market projection, on co-star Green Street projections, or what the SOFR curve's doing to predict growth and occupancy and comps and where interest rates and cap rates are going. Because those are all econometric models that are that are objective and not subjective. And so for curves are really determined by traders and their and, and their sentiment. And 
if you've actually if you've actually been through these cycles, you can and should apply your experience and a heavy level of subjectivity underwriting using those tools as a baseline. So I, I would say that the people that haven't been through the cycles are more more comfortable just using these sort of metrics. And it takes somebody, you know, frankly, like me with multiple cycles of experience to kick it in the right direction and say, look, why would we take risks at this point in the market cycle without being overly conservative? Because if you get it wrong, it could be really bad. Yeah, it's something that I, I I worry a lot about, just how exposed some of the managers are who have only been in the business throughout their whole career, maybe even throughout their whole life of real estate up into the right. And I think, you know, now is a time in 2023, 2024, et cetera, where, you know, people will be tested to make sure that their businesses are are strong and viable and their balance sheets are, you know, able to to uh, support them through a prolonged, slower period. Yeah. Look, I mean, a, just a, a simple example would be. You know, everybody's having a tough time trying to figure out how to project exit cap rates right now when, when they're when they're underwriting a property. So normally what you would do in a functioning market is you would add 50, 100 basis points or some kind of metric to the exit cap rates to account for, to be conservative and to account for the aging or you know, increasing dysfunctionality of the property. And now if you do that, you know, the problem is, I think people... If you do that now, you're never going to get a deal done because cap rates and interest rates are so high. So what a lot of people are doing is they're using the SOFR curve to, and then taking a spread to, let's say, the curve five years out to predict exit cap rates. And you take a spread to that. But if you take a spread to that, you're still below what your cap rate is today. So I think a lot of a lot of firms are doing that. So that means you're really assuming declining cap rates. Now, if we are truly in a higher for longer environment, which a lot of people think we are, including including me, and you're 100, 200 basis points off on your exit cap rate assumption because of that, you're going to be dead. I mean, your, your properties are not, they're going to you know, substantially underperform. So what we do is we, we just assume that rates are going to be higher for longer and we kind of take a spread off of, off of today's rate rather than follow the curve down. So those are the things you sort of learn having gone through cycles and not just not just following what the objective market metrics deliver. Makes sense. That's a good segue. You know, the underwriting is a good segue to talk about Stepstone. So you mentioned at the start, you know, Stepstone is a very large organization. You're not just real estate focused, but you run the real estate business which if I'm you know, recalling correctly, is your funds business, your secondaries business, and your co-investment business, correct? Correct. And then you also have a consulting business, which I believe you all acquired several years ago. Is that also fall under your, your leadership or is that a separate, separate business unit? No, it's, it's all, all, all of those functions are integrated. The way we think of our world is we invest in Real estate funds. We invest in secondaries, including recapitalizations. We mainly focus on GP-led secondaries, and we focus on co-investment. So we do those three things: invest in funds, invest in funds through secondaries or by recapitalizing them, and co-invest alongside funds to help managers right size their deals 
So that's sort of what we invest in. And then the other part of the sort of explanation is how do we do that? So for funds, we're typically investing on behalf of clients through our advisory practice. And so that is, you know, you, you'd mentioned buying Portland Partners in 2018. So we acquired Portland, Portland Partners in 2018 to not create that business, but to expand that business. Because we were already doing it. Frankly, we were pretty small. We were building our business from scratch after we innovated, integrated Clareview into Stemstone. We had picked up about $5 billion of assets under advisement, mainly almost probably exclusively through current Stepstone private equity clients that expanded into real estate. We were struggling, or I would say having zero success <laughs> building that business organically because you can't show up to a major institution and say, gee, I want to be an advisor now because every advisory post is really taken. So you're not going to unseat your competitors without five years of experience and a five-year track record. And sorry, and $5 billion of AUA. Those are sort of the, the rules. So we were finding we were sort of dead in the water and building that business. So the opportunity to buy Portland in 2018 allowed us to grow that business from $5 billion to $100 billion overnight. So suddenly we can now be qualified to, you know, seek and win any advisory mandate there there is. So, so that's really that's the advisory side of the business, and it's really fully integrated with our secondary and co-investment business. So we don't consider them separate businesses at all. Our advisory business gives us since we're meeting with fund managers continuously to analyze their funds, consider their funds for the clients we advise. We are in the flow of everything that GPs are doing. So that gives us a chance to not only source co-investments and secondaries through those GP interactions, but to bring in the information that we get through the meetings and through our our investments in their funds to help facilitate the co-investment and secondaries and recap business. So it's all very integrated. It's one business. The people from each side are on the are on investment committees together. People from the advisory side are sourcing secondaries and co-investments. They're underwriting the managers when we do those deals. They're doing the operational due diligence. People from the secondaries and co-investments and recap side, you know, are getting involved in the underwriting of managers because they know them really well. We're really one team and you know, just fully integrated. This seems to be a trend in the industry. You all started off as the investment management business and acquired the advisory business and expanded your assets under advisement through that. Others have started off on the consulting side and then organically developed their own investment managers. What's kind of driving this kind of commingling of the advisory business and the investment management business? And how does that impact the clients that you serve on the advisory side? Yeah, that raises a couple issues. What one is why are advisors doing it? And two, are there conflicts? Because there's always been this, especially in the US, this large perception of conflicts if you're an asset manager and advisor. So I'll I'll address the first one. The, the, the reason why advisors have found themselves needing to pivot into asset management is because 
of the continually squeezed economics of the advisory side. There's just been a trend towards institutions wanting to pay less and less for advisory services. In real estate, particularly private equity, it's not so bad, but in, in real estate in particular, they, we could have a whole podcast on my theory and why that is. But So it's been, frankly, very hard for advisors to keep and retain talent and make their businesses viable. So they've had to look for wider margin businesses. And they've, and they've concluded, look, we spend our lives analyzing real estate and managers, you know, markets. Why not start investing, at least on an indirect basis? And you know, several of our competitors have, and they've been successful. So, so that, that's, that's really why I think it's been just to try to improve their economic model, which had gotten so squeezed. And also, you know, it, and to, to keep and retain the type of talent you need by entering bus- a business with wider margins. Yeah. And you mentioned the second point around, you know, the perception of conflicts. I- I'm sure this isn't the first time it's come up. How do you kind of think about the role that you play as a, as a fiduciary, you know, and, a, and an advisor? Yeah. So it's a prevalent and something we're always fighting against, particularly in the U.S., Non-US markets, it tends to be less of a concern. But I think that institutions have a viable concern about a conflict whereby an advisor that also has investment products would advise them to invest in their products. So that is, I think, the number one conflict that exists. And, And look, we overcome that in a very simple way. We never advise our clients to invest in our products. In fact, we will and have often underwritten competing funds, funds that compete with our funds for our clients and do it in a very open and transparent way. I can't think of a time we haven't approved it. So we just make sure to step clear of that conflict by sort of keeping that, that, that rule hard, hard and fast. The other conflict that we hear about sometimes is that since we have a co-investment business that where we make ease and carry and the economics are better, that we would put a client we advise into a particular fund in order to drive co-investments from that fund into our into our co-investment fund. So we could incent the manager by giving him lots of primary capital, give us co-investments for other pockets. And my answer to that would be we wouldn't do it, first of all, because it's unethical. So let's just start there. But, you know, people don't want to leave things subject to an ethical decision. They want the right structures in place. Look, the bottom line is we may or may not, from any one particular manager, get a co-investment every couple of years. It's just not, it would never be enough to actually make a bad decision about investing our client's primary capital because our business depends on keeping that client happy and giving good references. And we keep and value the track record from our primary investment. So we're not going to sacrifice those relationships, do the wrong thing and sacrifice our track record. So maybe in a couple of years, we might see a co-investment from this manager that we just put capital to. It's just, it's not viable. But 
I will tell you where you, you hear the you hear the phrase. I use it only in jazz. It you know there's no interest unless there's a conflict. But there's there's actually a synergy between what we do on the advisory side and the asset management side that is extremely should be extremely helpful to the clients that we advise. For example, when we do a co-investment or a secondary or a recap with a manager. We really get to know that manager really well. Very different than underwriting a manager from the desk where you're looking at their, you know, a typical manager underwriting is you're looking at their track record, you're understanding their team, you're looking at their operational due diligence, but basically you're, 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 you're investing in a blind pool based upon the expected performance of the manager by doing research. If you've actually done a deal with them, if you've done a co-investment, if you've done a secondary, if you've done a recap, you've rolled up your sleeves with them, you've gotten reporting, you scrutinize their due diligence. In our case, we typically require control in our secondary recap deals. We've like been at the table co-controlling with them. You really get to know their strengths and weaknesses. And we have a much better sense of whether or not of their capabilities for managing blind pool discretionary capital that we may allocate to their funds for our clients. So it's actually a huge advantage for us to, to, to have the, all this direct experience with the managers so we can make better decisions for our clients on the advisory side. Perfect. Well, that, that's helpful context. It makes a lot of sense. So I think you know, with that in mind, let's talk about kind of the investing side and what the landscape looks like. So specifically, curious, you know, you're widely known in the industry as you know, kind of one of, if not the leading expert in secondaries. And I think there's long been heard you remark at different conferences that the huge uptake in secondaries has kind of been expected forever, but we haven't really seen it, at least historically. I'm curious to understand kind of what you're seeing today in terms of volume and flows with in the secondaries market in general. And then specifically, would love to just unpack a little bit more on the GP-led secondary space, just to educate our listeners of how that's different from LP-led secondaries and some of you know, GP stakes investing, et cetera, just so we understand kind of what the what the motion and the the mechanics of it are. Sure. So starting off with LP secondaries or traditional secondaries, it's you're you're right about my comments. It's uh it's a market that has never turned on to the extent that the PE market has. And I think the real estate secondary market developed in the way it has and under the auspice that real estate should and will catch up to the PE market in terms of trading volume. And it just, it just really hasn't. There's been peaks in volume, you know, five to $12 billion kind of a year, but a lot of that's been driven by episodic trades, Harvard management, a billion dollar trade, Calster is a billion dollar trade that are sort of one-offs and they make the markets big. But but the flow business just has really never been there. Now, coming into this cycle, this cycle of, of high interest rates, high inflation, declining property values, we, we believe that this, this should catalyze a significant amount of secondaries trading activity. LPs, you know, should be liquidity constrained and need to divest of their fund positions because distributions are down so low. Our, our data from our, the, 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 we collect on our, across our clients 
activities suggests that distributions are down 70% year on year. So distributions are down, but, but I, think, I think capital calls are only down 25%. So there's a big liquidity gap for LPs on the horizon. You know, you combine that with the denominator effect. I know the stock market's bounced back and the denominator effect is starting to wane, but still real estate values haven't really come down enough. So there is some denominator effect issues. A lot of firms are still over-allocated to real estate. So you kind of com- combine this illiquidity with the denominator effect. And we absolutely see a potential market for LP secondaries out there that really should, and I put up air quotes, come to fruition. The problem is right now, everybody knows that values have intrinsically declined by, remember we were, we were polling the room at Nareem and everybody had their view, but I think generally people think peak to trough value declines are somewhere between 20 and 30%. That's kind of what the REIT market would imply. And that's what those experts in the real estate market think. So, but the, but the write downs haven't been there. So, LP, a lot of LPs have tried to test the market and they're finding that they're getting bids at 25, 30% discounts. And those are just not solutions they can take to their boards. So they backed off. So we're just seeing little to no trading in the LP secondary market right now. Although, knock wood, you know, computer says it should come. So that's the LP secondary market. I can, I can pivot over to the GP led market, but I'll give you a chance to uh, follow up on any questions you have on, on, on the LP market. Yeah. So uh, when when you're just out of curiosity, when you're seeing LPs test the market, are you seeing kind of any trends? Are they doing this in their? Uh, are they doing this kind of with their best performing assets or their worst performing assets? You know, we hear a lot about you know because of the denominator effect, what do you have to get rid of first? And it seems like it's split. You know, half the group is we sell our best. You know, we try to get rid of our best. We try, and the other half is we try to get rid of our worst. Any kind of noticeable trends, even without the actual transacting, just in terms of what you're seeing from a flows perspective. Yeah, I think I think you hit it on the head. You're you're, you're seeing both. You're, you're seeing LPs that are serious about needing liquidity, trying to sell their best assets and getting the lowest discount possible. And then you're seeing some that are frankly probably unrealistic and misguided, and thinking that hey, this is a great time to get rid of my office portfolio, or and so so or my or my, or my funds that are underperforming, and I'll take them to the market, and if I can get you know ten cents off of NAV, then I'm you know I'm a hero, but they don't, you know, the market's too sophisticated and efficient really to deliver big pricing to bad assets. So yeah, it's it's really bifurcated. Like, and then frankly, virtually nothing's traded. I mean, if you believe that, you know, illiquidity is a feature, not a bug, then I guess the system is working the way that it was intended to until you get to a market clearing price. Absolutely. It, it, absolutely. Investors are, are too smart right now to, to take risk and close at the wrong pricing. Yep. So that's the LP side. So then what's this, you know, GP led secondaries and kind of what are the, you know, how do you compare and contrast the the flows that you're seeing there with, you know, the lack of activity on the LP led secondary side? So the just by by way of background, my partners and I sort of identified the opportunity in the GP led secondary space in 2009 during the GFC when we were living in the middle of a situation where the funds were all liquidity constrained. Their debt, they were over leveraged because of value declines. They were in the middle of 
development projects that couldn't be completed. They needed TIs to lease buildings. LPs were liquidity constrained, so couldn't or you know couldn't or wouldn't fund, and you know especially to solve their maturing debt problem. Simple math is that when refi proceeds aren't enough to cover loan ba- balances, payout balances on outstanding loans, the borrower has a problem. They've got to come up with equity to fund, to fund that gap. So we looked at the market and we sort of said, hey, wait a second. If we come in and we recapitalize these funds or other kinds of real estate vehicles, we put in new money with our secondaries funds. It may not be you know, a secondary because you're buying out an LP interest, but it's exactly the same thing because, you, because at the end of the day, what you're doing is you're, get, you're entering this fund just by recapitalizing it, not by taking out an LP, and you're getting in and you're pricing it at a discount. So same thing as a, as a secondary, but with a couple really big differences. One is that now you're helping the GP solve a problem, not giving the money to the LP to create liquidity. And since you're helping the GP solve a problem, guess what you get? You get their full cooperation with due diligence materials. We're coming in and recapitalizing these funds to help them you know, pay down debt and solve other liquidity problems or even buy out their LPs. We would get full information transparency and we could underwrite the assets like we were buying the assets. And the other thing we could do is in many, many cases, and this is almost in all our cases now, we structure for control. Hey, if we're going to be involved in this, we want to go control. So we identified this strategy during the GFC. We called it special situation secondaries because GP-led secondaries was even a word or happening at the time. And that's the, the strategy that we've been executing ever since. So now it's back to the future. We're seeing the absolute same dynamics in the market right now with one important difference during the gfc there was heavy operational distress and we had to underwrite the assets underlying the funds we were recapitalizing and assuming you know really assume that the world was falling off a cliff right we're conservative now but you know this recession that everybody keeps wanting to happen isn't happening so operationally the real estate's pretty steady. So, so you're really solving a capital markets problem, not a, you know, it's a broken balance sheet, not a broken asset problem. So we're looking at these situations where funds are over levered and we can come in with our capital to help fund the gap between loan payoff amounts and, and refi proceeds. And so since we've been through it, again, all that, that cycle experience is really important. Since we had been through this in the GFC, we saw the same dynamic, falling prices over levered assets, LPs that are liquidity constrained because of no distributions. We had projected there was going to be a big market for this, but it hadn't come, right? Because what has to happen is there's, there's almost $4 trillion of debt maturing in the US and Europe in the next five years. But that debt has to actually mature before the stress by the borrowers catalyzed. So that hadn't happened yet. And now it's happening in a big way. We haven't closed a deal all year. 
we just put three deals into due diligence that fit this profile and our pipeline's now starting to build. So the opportunity set for GP-led secondaries, principally sale restructure balance sheets, is here and we think coming in a, in a very big way. That's interesting. So this is being recorded in November of 2023. You haven't done a deal all year, but you're starting to see it pick up. So I think that that's instructive. Just to confirm, when you talk about, when we're talking about GP-led secondaries, is that only for GPs that are operating in a closed end or a fund model? Or are you also, does this apply kind of at the opco level? Maybe you're, you know, you have deals that are capitalized one by one or through kind of a traditional syndication model? Like what are the parameters or are there really no parameters if we go back to the uh, historical name of special situation? It's more about an infusion of capital to help shore up the balance sheet for good operators with good assets. Yeah, absolutely. The latter, you hit, you, you hit, a, you hit the nail on the head. We, we don't just play in the, in the fund world. Unlike private equity where capital's you know, really organized into private equity deal through private equity funds. And that's really 90% of where the capital comes from. In real estate, it's about 40%. Only 40% of the investable universe is addressed through funds. Yeah. The rest, we, as you know, you have operators, you have developers, you've got families, you've got financial institutions, you've got private REITs. There's a myriad of different clubs, you know, joint ventures. There's a myriad of different ways of real estate. So we always, we will do a secondary or recap or co-investment with any one of those kinds of, kinds of vehicles. In fact, frankly, the big funds don't really need our capital. I don't think, I don't think Blackstone's going to call us for a, a recap of, of their latest fund, but, you know, a medium size fund medium cap fund with strong management and good assets that may have less access to liquidity and capital than you know the big mega funds all day long. So you're right. It's not just funds. There are all those different kinds of vehicles that we, we address in our investment program. I think it's really interesting. I mean, a lot of our listeners are clients of Juniper Square. As you know, Jeff, we have, you know, call it 2000 GP customers. The vast majority are you know, historically in real estate, now increasingly in private equity and venture capital. But of those, only a fraction of the total count have funds, right? And so a lot of them are, you know, local operating partners to large institutional and JV partners. Some have capitalized their business deal by deal, you know, in the syndication model with friends and family or kind of networks of high net worth capital. If one of those types of groups is listening today and they're wondering, what they need to do to get the attention of a group like Stepstone. You mentioned you're conservative. You mentioned you like control. You mentioned you need data rights and maximum transparency. And you mentioned that you know having a history together is advantageous because you know how people will act and perform kind of under pressure. But what are some of the other kind of like organizing principles that are important to you when you're looking at you know trans you know potential transactions or potential operators to invest into or alongside of? Look, I mean, I, the, the, the bottom line is they have to be institutional. And that sounds like a, a, a vague term, but they have what to is, pass what, our... What, is, what does that mean? First of all, it means you, you can't have any real issues in your history. We wouldn't want to see lawsuits, disputes with employees. It, you just have to be 
you've operated your business with integrity and efficiency and sort of in an institutional manner. And that's what one aspect of it. Obviously, track record's important. We want to see people that have succeeded investing in these strategies that we're, we're looking to back. And then we have a you know, very thorough and sophisticated operational due diligence process that we put all of our managers through. And that's actually done at the stepstone level. So it would be the same group that does it for private equity, private debt infrastructure, looking for you know, reporting, compliance, ESG, all of the things that you would really want to focus on to make sure that their operations were of institutional quality. And, and that's, that's really the, the, the first baseline. This, so it's really track record, integrity of team, institutional, and the fact that they would pass our operational diligence. And it's a, it's a compliant. Yeah, that makes sense. We'll leave that that point there. I think there's there's probably you know many podcasts that we could discuss about manager selection, but I think that's a good that's a good overview. So in the in the time that we have left, uh, we talked a lot about the structures in terms of how you invest in the and in the opportunities that you see coming, especially you know as there's more kind of stress or distress in the market. How do you think about kind of forming your thesis from a geographic or a segment perspective? Do you you know do you start with the manager and then kind of understand? their ability to execute in a specific segment, say office or industrial or retail, or do you start with a thesis, you know, maybe it's alternatives and cold storage, and then you kind of work to find managers that fit the specific thesis that you and the team have defined. How, how do you think about the investment side of things? Yeah, we we think about it as asset type and product type first. So because I think it is a real differentiator between us and other secondaries funds. In the secondaries market, by necessity, you're sort of an asset taker, right? So, so an institution will decide to sell a basket of funds for whatever reason they're selling it for, and call it five or six funds, or run it through an auction process. Everybody jumps into the auction, and whoever gets lowest discount wins, and they end up getting what they get. You know, they price the assets to the extent they can with limited information to to the returns they're seeking. But you know, you may end up with X amount of office and Y amount of retail and, you know, maybe you're maybe some industrial but but anyway, so you get this portfolio price right. We should have a very different approach. So we start with our house views, which should we just released our second half of 2023 house views report and get a podcast, I think couple of days ago on it. So if any listeners would lo- like to get a copy of our house views, that's, we, we, we make it widely available, but it's a, it's a top down and bottom up analysis of the market focused on what product types are attractive, what geographies are attractive, what risk segments are attractive, be it opportunistic, value add four, four plus debt, and what capital structures are kind of interesting. So we actually come up and we analyze each of the sectors and then we come up with our own tilts and weightings based upon that analysis. I say top down because we use our market research department to look at macroeconomic, macro market factors. And then we use our investment team to say, okay, but what's really going on on the ground? Like, do I really like multi, like what's really going on with multifamily despite what, you know, Green Street happen, ha- happens to say. So we, we merge that and we negotiate a, our house views and, and tilts and we use that to build our portfolios, even in our secondary side. And the reason we can do that is for the reason you teed up earlier was because we don't just invest in funds. 
I would say a huge, the largest percentage of our investments are in sector-specific, smaller funds or operators or other kinds of real estate vehicles. So we can go out and say, look, we want to be you know, 40% multifamily or living sector. So then we're targeting managers to recap or do secondaries in that are in the living sector. Not so much office. So we're not really talking to managers that are doing office. So you, you, you get how it works. And our, our current portfolio is exactly, frankly, how I think everyone would hope theirs would look like right now for our, our fund series. It's about 50% living sector, which includes multifamily, student housing, senior housing, manufactured housing, data centers, cold storage, uh, industrial. We have less than 3% exposure to office, less than 3% exposure to retail across our fund series. And that's been by careful portfolio construction and, 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 and design. So given, given what you just shared, Jeff, about your current portfolio mix, what do you anticipate might change over the next 12 to 18 months? Or is it kind of continue to execute against the strategy that's been set in place? No, I, th- I think... Look, I mean, I, th- I think the writing's on the wall for what the attractive target sectors are. Uh, we've certainly downweighted office in the post-pandemic era for reasons I obviously don't need to go into. Maybe the biggest shift has been to increase exposure to retail. We, we believe that retail went through a no, a, a, a drastic reorganization with the advent of e- e-commerce and everything that came with it. And it took, what, six, seven years. We redlined retail for funds in 2015. Only did one retail deal because we, like everybody else, we didn't touch anything. Not gross re-anchor, you know, not, not lifestyle, anything. We just, we just thought that that was a sector that even if Grocery anchored or some of the more viable sectors weren't affected by the reorganization of real estate duty commerce, but the capital markets was going to punish it anyway. So you might have, you might show up in higher interest rates, higher cap rates. You know, so why, why, why do it? Now we feel like it's found its footing. We know what the retail model should look like. There's been a calling out of the sector. So I think we're, we're left with the health, healthy centers and the healthy retailers. And again, we know what the footprint should look like. We think retail is going to have a comeback. So that would be a big shift. I think we'll, we'll lean more into retail as we go forward. You know, less into office. Probably keep, keep our focus on digital data centers. You know, it, it took a little bit of a pause until AI blew up. And now I think we're going to be finding ourselves to not be able to build enough of it. So that's a snapshot. But uh, happy, happy to send over our house user report. Yeah, I would l- I'd love to read it. And I'm sure some of our listeners will be uh, asking for it as well. Um, I can't help but notice you're sitting in an office, at what looks like an office building in a city. Maybe you're in your San Francisco office today. I can't. Are you in San Francisco or New York? I'm in San Francisco. I was in New York yesterday. So the, li- the life we lead. You're, you're in an office building. I'm in my home office. What's your, what's just kind of the quick view on office in general? We know that it's been beaten up, but are you in the camp of it's, it's going to be a massive bloodbath and only the A-plus properties are going to survive and you know, people are going to continue to work for home. Or kind of where, what's the house view on where StepStone sits on, on the office market broadly? Look, I, mean, I, I, think it's, I think it's going to be closer to being a bloodbath 
in, in the U.S., you, you have to you have to differentiate. Asia is completely functioning office market. People people going to work. Europe is probably somewhere between the U.S. and Asia. Let's just take the U.S. I've said this from the very beginning. People aren't going to stop coming to work at, because of all the reasons everybody keeps talking about culture and sense of place and 100% agree with all that. But people are going to go in the office less. And if people go in the office less, that takes demand out of the market. If you only take 20% of the demand out of the market, you've got a big problem. That leaves a lot of vacant space. For example, we just leased space in New York. We are hot desk because if you're going to allow work from home flexibility and we're substance on the 60-40 model, so 60% we want to see in the office, 40% you can work remotely. We think that's really positive for everybody, but the businesses should be able to benefit from some of that by taking on less space and maybe forcing more sharing. And so businesses are looking at it that way. We see, we all see the statistics. Everybody who's renewing their leases are downsizing. So that is going to result in less space. Now, eventually, call it five years from now, I'm just shooting from the hip. Eventually, the economies grow and businesses expand and the cranes are not up anymore. So eventually, the space will get filled and we'll have a functioning market. But you had said class A versus all the other stuff. Then you've got a big problem with what do you do with all the space that's it's now becoming functionally obsolete? And that's a pre-pandemic problem. Pre-pandemic, you had already had an issue where, like in New York, everyone's moving to Hudson Yards. Pre-pandemic, because the old Class B buildings that people were in were not adept to deliver the technologically, the technology, the infrastructure, the amenities that you need to run a business and draw people into the office. So I worry about those kind of buildings and that they'll, you know, never come back. Not to mention, like in Europe, you've got the issue of all everything needs to be ESG retrofitted. And the cost of doing that is just tremendous. So I think we're gonna have, you know, I think we're gonna have problems in the office sector for some time because work from home, functional obsolescence, and the need to ESG retro. Perfect. Well, like I said, I think we could riff for hours on the market fundamentals and office in particular. Unfortunately, our time together is just about out. Before I wrap all of my episodes, I like to ask guests, if anybody wants to learn more about StepStone or get in touch with you or a member of your team, what's the best way for them to find you and to learn more about what you do and try to connect with somebody at, at StepStone's real estate business or StepStone broadly? Yeah, um, great. great. Obviously, obviously, the website is, is a great place to go, www.stepstonegroup.com. Call me. <laughs> Email me, I'm accessible, or anyone on my team as a start. Great. I think that's a good place to start. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. I always enjoy our conversations. Uh, very thought-provoking. And until next time, thank you. Thanks, Brandon. I really enjoyed it. Have a, have a great day. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Distribution by Juniper Square. If you like today's podcast, please share it with a colleague or a friend. And don't forget to subscribe and rate The Distribution on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with me on LinkedIn by going to www.linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash B Sedloff. Or you can find me on Twitter at B Sedloff. You can also find a video recording of this conversation on demand at junipersquare.com forward slash the dash distribution. Until next time.